the notes for uh, 14 verses. It's kind of it's kind of scary. I I don't know if uh, you picked up what Tom said, but not only did Curtis call me yesterday to tell me that um, he couldn't preach because he was so sick, um, but the time that he called me was 9:30 at night. just as I was getting into bed, right? And I, and I saw his face on my screen, and I go, oh, no, this isn't good. And then your, f- <laughs> your first thought always when you see a call like that is, well, maybe I just shouldn't answer it. <laughs> and then I thought, no, I couldn't sleep all night if I knew that was the case. So I picked it up, and, and, and sure enough, um, um, he, he, he said he was so ill he, he couldn't, he couldn't teach, and so um, I've been spending most of the day. I, we we did a, we've been doing trial runs as as uh, elder candidates um, and preaching candidates as well in the room over here. So we did, we did a trial run several weeks ago, and I was basically polishing the chrome and reorganizing some stuff for more clear content. And I would have liked to have had an additional week, but I spent the whole day studying about God's providence and God's sovereignty and God, how God is over all things, and and who are we to trust in our own deeds but not in God's, right? So, so I couldn't say no. It's, it's just, it, it, it would be against all things faithful to say no. So, so I said yes. So I will say that um, I would have loved to have had an additional week to practice and get this perfect, um, but I didn't. And so uh, I pray that God will be glorified through it, that um, the good news that I read in his gospel um, in Ephesians would be able to be communicated clearly, clearly to you guys and that basically God would be glorified through all of that. Um, what I will say is that I, what I really appreciate about Veritas Church is the high priority that we place here upon preaching. Preaching is held in high esteem. And I believe that a number of us here that attend this church that are members attend here specifically for that particular reason that maybe you've been to other churches where preach where God's, well, let's say where teaching is done. I'll call it teaching. And, and you don't hear the gospel. You don't hear the truth. And doesn't that grieve your soul? Maybe it's a memorial service or a wedding, and you know, and it's in a church environment, and you know what God's word says. Maybe it's a funeral, and you know what truth and peace that the gospel could bring to that situation. And it's in a church, and they don't even preach the gospel. It, it's, it's, just, it's just craziness. And so what I appreciate about being at this church, being a member, is the primacy put on preaching and um, and I would pray then, therefore, that I'm able to, to um, glorify God as I ought in, in acting in this position this morning. And again, I would pray that God would be glorified and praised as we work through um, the first 14 versions, um, first 14 verses of Ephesians here. Um, let's, uh, let's, let's start. I, I do want to comment first off by preaching from Ephesians is, is a bit like, like uh, walking upon holy ground. Um, Calvin called uh, Ephesians the, his favorite book of the Bible. John Knox asked to have Ephesians, uh, Calvin's sermons on Ephesians read to him on his deathbed. Um, a third commentator who was a bit more verbose called Ephesians <clears throat> the crowning jewel of Paul's theology, a distillation of the basic themes of Paul's theology presented in their greatest depth and widest possible scope. So this indeed is holy ground. It's very dense. This first 14 verses, guess how many sentences this was in the original language? One sentence. 
one sentence. Um, very verbose, very, very, very dense. It's sort of like a um, uh, dryer's ice cream or a very rich ice cream or gelato. And there's, there's a ton here. And if, if you, like me, as we read through this, are, are overwhelmed and your mind starts spreading because there's so many spinning, because there's so many significant theological roads and side roads um, discussed and we could go down, um, you're, you're in the right place. And so I'm going to try to just highlight a few key points hopefully that the primary points out of these first 14 verses, out of this first one sentence, to basically try to drive home the, the key points that Paul was trying to communicate to this church in Ephesus. Um, several decades ago, um, many decades ago, I was a, uh, a college student, um, many colleges. I did spend some time at uh, Cal State Northridge, and um, while I was there, I met a gal, not Katie, before Katie, and uh, she's not here, so I'm okay, right? Um, I met a gal who invited me to a, uh, I'd been in a backpacking class with her. She invited me to a backpacking uh, trip with her church. And the church was uh, John MacArthur's church out in the San Fernando Valley, very heavy-duty reformed church. And there's a lot of preaching of the gospel there, a lot of preaching of God's word, but it didn't really hit home with me. But I tell you what did hit home with me, and I think God was basically working on getting through my thick skull of my need for him and my position in the universe. Um, I had my sleeping bag, a little mummy bag, out in the middle of a, of a meadow, and I woke up at about 3 o'clock in the morning, and I opened my eyes, and from horizon to horizon across the vast canopy of the sky was just the vast expanse of the Milky Way, millions and millions and millions of stars, and I felt like a spider hanging from a thin thread in the midst of this huge expanse of the universe, and I was totally humbled. I mean, I was almost frightened, and it was just the stars. So the universe, and God has a way to use the universe to testify as to his greatness and how great he really is. And in the same way, as we're going to see this morning, God also uses his word to add to that testimony of his greatness by basically telling us about his sovereignty, about our sin, and about his holiness, his justice, his grace, mercy, and salvation. As we are humbled vertically, as we see God as he really is, um, our relationship has changed. It's changed with God. Um, as Tom was preaching or t- sharing this morning about um, the sovereignty of God and how it humbles us, in the same way, when we see our position with God, we are humbled as well. And that affects our relationship. It also affects our relationship with one another as well, too. So God's word is effective. God's testimony through creation is effective. Let's basically see what God has to say to us this morning. But first, before jumping into um, our verses, I want to provide a little bit of background um, of context for this book. Um, I think it's easy to read Ephesians and come off with a wrong impression um, unless we understand the setting and the time. And I did this as well myself, and I realized that things that I had originally thought were true in trying to wrap my head around the doctrine, the document, the letter itself, and what it meant, they were mistaken because I didn't have a full understanding or correct understanding of how the Ephesians and life in the first century was different than it is today. But as well, it's also similar to how it is today too. Um, So we're going to look first a bit at Paul's history at Ephesus and how he dealt with those people in the past. Then we'll look at both how the church at Ephesus 
was similar to the church here at Roseville in the 21st century and how it was different. And then we'll finally look at why Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians, and that'll help give us a better understanding again of what the meaning of this book really is. So when did Paul write this letter? Um, Basically, Paul uh, visited Ephesus at the end of his second missionary journey. He made three journeys, right? He visited there briefly at the end of his second missionary journey, and he also visited Ephesus once again during his third missionary journey, and he spent three years there. Now, three years may not sound like a lot of time, but that was actually the largest amount of time that the Apostle Paul spent at any one individual church. So it's, it's significant um, that Paul spent that much time there, and it communicates to me that Paul had a close connection to the Ephesians. He had invested a lot of time and energy with the people there. He had a relationship. He had many relationships with the people there, and he was close to those people. Um, Paul also had a ministry at that church, and he had a ministry in that city. And his, his ministry was so effective that so many came to faith that the local city smiths of the city, the people that made idols for the Temple of Diana, were upset because their sales were dropping off, and they, and they, and they rioted. And the riot was such a significant event that Paul was forced to leave the city after that event and um, go back to uh, uh, the place whose name, uh, Antioch. That's the place that he went back to. Um, Finally, Paul wrote Ephesians while in jail um, under lighthouse arrest um, in Rome, most likely, around 62 AD. And at that same time, he also wrote the other two letters of to the Colossians and to the, to the Philippian church, to the, to the, uh, to, no, the letter of Philemon, Philemon as well too. So he wrote all three of these letters while he was under lighthouse arrest in, in uh, Rome. So how is or was Ephesus different than Roseville today? Um, so it's both different and the same. Again, this book was written, this letter was written 62 A.D., um, about 30 years after Christ was crucified. So if you do the math, okay, so that was 30 years. So there's, there's a strong likelihood that people that were actually members at those churches in Ephesus were actually, had been eyewitnesses of Christ's life and his, his uh, preaching and his teaching and also his crucifixion. So it was different because we were dealing with the first century. There are people that were still alive that had seen Christ, but they were now beginning to get old. They were beginning to pass away. So when that happens, you begin to wonder, well, what's this new generation coming to? Where is the church going to be after these firsthand observers, these firsthand eyewitnesses have passed away? Um, there also was, well, what was, what was the New Testament back in that day? Yeah, there wasn't one, right? There was no published doctrine until um, centuries later, right? They only had a few epistles that were out there, a few letters that were written that were floating around from church to church, and they did have the Old Testament. They had the Torah, right? So they did have God's doctrine, but all of the things that we hold in our hand, all of the doctrines, all of the truth that we're able to review and refresh and to, to go over ourselves in this day and age to be able to reassure ourselves of those biblical truths, they didn't have those back in those days. Um, Additionally, they had some other complications that we didn't have as well uh, today. Um, Back in that day, um, there were Jews, like we've got today, but the Jews were Christians. The believing Jews. They were believing Jews, yet they were Christians. And so there was the big struggle about, well, we've got 
Gentiles that had become believers through God's work in their heart. And we had Jews that had probably, to a large extent, fled Israel during the persecution after Christ had been, had been crucified. And so you've got two distinct camps with very distinct beliefs. The Jews basically felt it was still important to follow up on all of the original laws of the Old Testament, um, primarily circumcision, right? And some other laws that were very important. They saw those sacrifices as still being important. On the other hand, you had these Gentile believers that were traditionally outside the camp. Gentiles were what? Remember you had the, you had the court of the Gentiles in, in the temple and it was outside. And the Gentiles didn't have the ability to come in because the Jews, had under, as they understood the gospel, they were the ones that were God's chosen people. It was only for them and just for them, basically. And so the, the debate at that time, too, was did the Gentile believers need to follow the same laws and regulations and sacrificial um, obedience requirements as the Jews did? So it was, it was a time of turmoil. It was a time of uncertainty regarding what Christianity really meant. Um, to, to add to this, this problem of of lack of central doctrine and authority. We also had um, the situation where you notice how this, when Paul wrote this letter, as we'll see in a minute, hopefully, um, it, was, it wasn't written to the church at Ephesus because there really wasn't a church at Ephesus. There wasn't a single edifice. It wasn't like the temple in Israel. There was a smattering of house churches, and they were spread all across the countryside, some of them 60 miles apart from one another. Um, and so you can imagine in a situation where you didn't have a New Testament doctrine, you didn't have um, a centralized church government or authority, and you had teaching in, in, in dozens of individual churches all across a 60-mile radius, you probably can have a drift, a drift in doctrine, a drift, a drift in theology, right? So you can see that, that um, you've got kind of like a murky, confusing situation. It, unlike today where we've got God's word written and hopefully it's preached and taught clearly like it is now, um, you had a smattering of, of all kinds of different things going on, different positions, different doctrines, um, a, a dilution or, a, or a, a scrambling, let's say, of the truth, almost like uh, alphabet soup. And you could pick out different letters and, and make whatever you wanted out of it. So it was different from today. Um, it, was, it was a more chaotic situation. Um, however, the church in Ephesus was similar today as well. Um, Ephesus was a cultural city. You think of a cultural city now, a cultural center, you think of what? New York, San Francisco, um, coastal cities, right? D.C., I don't know, Boston, maybe not Boston. Okay. Um, but like Boston, it was a center of trade and commerce, a, a, a center of, of people coming and people going, a place of new ideas, a, people, a place of both good ideas and bad ideas. Um, it was a city that basically where the works of men rather than the works of God were praised. And even worse than that, it was a city where basically governmental ruling authorities were praised. Back in those days, they had the imperial cult. And the imperial cult basically was the idea that governmental rulers were worshipped as gods. So the, the, they're gover- hard to believe governmental rulers being worshipped as gods, but that's true. They actually did that, but they built temples to them. And so Ephesus is notable for being a home to the temple to uh, Julius Caesar. Um, as well, um, however, let's not forget that it was the center of the sovereign work of God. And so even though you had a lot of worship of man and a lot of man-centered humanity or humanistic type thought, it was also a center 
where God was still doing his work. As we can see in the fact that so many people came to Christ that the very business of the, uh, the uh, idol makers for the temple of Ephesus were threatened. So bottom line out of all of this is I think um, what you might draw the conclusion is is that uh, you had a situation a lot like today, perhaps a bit more confusing because the doctrine of the gospel and the Bible was less clear. You had a situation where um, Christians struggled to live the Christian life. They struggled to know what to believe. They struggled to know what to hold, to um, hang their hat on. They struggled to know where the center of their faith really was, really was in the center of a secular man-centered culture. So why did Paul write this letter? Um, other letters like Colossians, you can read those letters and it's really clear why they were written. In those letters, Paul would identify the primary heresy that was going on. You don't see that in, in Ephesus. And as a matter of fact, actually, um, if you read three, four, five commentaries on Ephesus, you're probably going to come up with a with four or five different uh, opinions as to why the book was written and even worse than that what the central theme was. Um, but based on the points we just looked at and also looking at some of the points that Paul drives home in this letter, I think it wouldn't be uh, stretching the truth too far or too much speculation to uh, expect the following. One, I think Paul saw this church as a church that struggled with moral compromise with the surrounding culture. You had a secular culture. You had a lot of humanism and you had pressure to conform. And there was actually persecution of those that didn't worship the governmental authorities. There was actually persecution of those that didn't worship um, the, the pagan gods. Um, and, and as well, it probably wouldn't be too much of a stretch of the faith to uh, think also that these people were, uh, the Ephesians were experiencing a weary commitment to the gospel, that while they were walking, following God's word, following the teachings of the apostle Paul, following the teachings of the other apostles, that they had a weary commitment. Um, bottom line, I think what it wouldn't be too much of a stretch of the faith to think that basically the Ephesians needed to see God exalted. They needed to see God for who he really was and needed to know his truth. So, with that huge background in place, ready to start our study of this single sentence of Ephesians that goes through 14 different verses. But before we do this, we need to pray. So if you please join me in prayer. God, this morning I would pray that uh, first and foremost that I would be able to clearly communicate your truth. God, not for my glory. God, not for any kind of uh, um, kudos to me. But God, I pray that I would be able to recall your word um, for your glory that I'd be able to clearly communicate your truth um, in a way that basically is able to bring you glory and uh, highlight just what a good God you really are. I pray also, God, that you be glorified as we grasp your majesty as your gra- and your grace and your mercy. I pray, God, that we would be humbled as if we were under your vast canopy of stars, knowing that while we are small, you are big. God, I pray that we would be encouraged as we understand, God, who you made us to be, our gospel identity, God, our secure position as elect, redeemed, adopted children of you, our Heavenly Father. And finally, God, I pray this morning that we would glorify you through our lives, 
that we would love and count one another more worthy than ourselves and of a newfound spirit of gratitude, of submission, and of love for you. Amen. So, we've got an outline this morning because if you're like me, you like to know where the, where the preacher's going and you want to make sure he's on track and not running off down some side alley. Um, so we're going to, here's an outline of this morning's uh, breakdown of these 14 verses or this one sentence. We're first going to look at Paul's greeting in the letter to the Ephesians. Then we're going to look at our blessings in Christ, election, redemption, and inheritance. We're going to start off with Paul's greeting. Then we're going to look at um, our blessings, our election, redemption, and inheritance. Let me uh, start by... uh, I'm going to read the enti- at the at the at the uh, possible expense of of driving us all crazy and over and over uh, indulging in this verse. I'm going to read these 14 verses, and then we're going to focus on the first two verses. And um, again, this is really, really, really rich language, and it's really hard to pay attention for more than five minutes because Paul is just giving you so many little things that you want to hang on to, and then and then he moves on to the next thing. So it's a little bit overwhelming. Um, so I'm going to read this a little bit slowly, and we're going to break this down in the, in the text itself. But I think going over it a couple times will help some of these, these uh, rich points to stick in our brains. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things in earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I really wanted to break this up. I really wanted to break this up into like three different messages. But you know it was one sentence. It really was intended to hang as one entire point. And as that earlier commentator said, 
it's a compilation, it, it's a capsulization, it's a distillation of all that Paul taught. So I think, I think it's worthwhile for all of us to try to wrap our heads around the text as a whole. And again, we're probably only going to keep like 15% of what's there. But trust me, there is a central theme in this. And we're going to try to like identify that theme and hold on to it and tie these additional, like, a, like hanging ornaments on a Christmas tree. We're going to ha- try to hang these blessings that God has for us on this central truth that we're going to find in just a moment and drive through that to the end. And by the time we get to the end, hopefully um, when we read those 14 verses, there'll be some kind of clarity of thought and a central focus to all of that. So the greeting. Easy peasy. This is amazing. Look how Paul wrote this. Look how Paul wrote this greeting. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? See how short and concise it is? Don't you wish the entire section was like that? Paul, what are you doing? I really don't know why he did this. Um, let's start with the greeting. Simple and easy. Um, like all letters of this time period, um, it included a greeting. The greeting typically would talk about who it was from, who it was to, and then it'd have like a salutation. You know, good day, hi, you know, best wishes to you. Um, however, Paul took liberties to modify this greeting to actually drive home some of the points he was going to carry on further on in the letter. Um, Paul's an, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. This, what, this was a letter not just from Paul. Um, this was a letter from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. An apostle was what? An apostle was a messenger. Um, the Greek word for apostle is messenger. An official appointed representative um, um, with authority to speak for God. Kind of like an ambassador. In the same way that an ambassador can speak for the president. So Paul had the full authority to speak for Jesus Christ. Um, so when Paul introduced this letter to the Ephesians, remember again, how many years before had Paul actually been to Ephesus? Seven, right? It had been a long time. He'd been out of touch with them for a long time. And so when he writes this letter, he didn't write it again as, as an old friend. This is a letter, see if you got, like getting a letter from the president or from the pope or I don't know, whoever your, your central uh, authority would be. But this, this letter came with weight and Paul is invoking that weight by stating the fact that he's Paul, an apostle. And he's not just an apostle based on his own opinion. He's an apostle by the will of God. It's a significant thing. This letter came with weight. In the, in the same way, too, this letter was addressed to um, the people in Ephesus. Not just the people in Ephesus, actually. What, how does it read? It reads to the saints who are in Ephesus. Paul is calling these people saints. What, what, what would you say if I... Uh, if I went to your office and we had lunch together and um, we met your supervisor and um, I said, oh, I, you know, uh, you, I introduced you as like a saint, right? What if I introduced you to a friend of mine as a saint? What would you say? You might push back, whoa, you know, a saint. What are you talking about, right? What are you talking about, saint? Paul called these people saints because that's how God defined them. God defines people believers, Christians, those of us that believe in him as saints. That's how we are. And that's how Paul was addressing these, these, these people in Ephesus. 
because they needed to know that. They needed to know that basically when they became believers and they became Christians, God had done a significant work in their lives and changed them from the old man to the new man. And in the new man, they basically were a new creation. In that new creation, Paul sees them and God sees them as saints. Perfect not because of their own works, because of the works that, that, that God had done for them, that Christ had done on the cross. So again, it's sent to saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And then the greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Paul hadn't been there for seven years. If you got a letter from Pastor Eric, what would be your first thought? Oh my gosh, church discipline, what did I do? That, <laughs> that, that deep, dark secret has finally come out or, you know, I don't know, I... I I, I let somebody out of the, the kids' ministry room, the, the uh, classroom, without you know, notifying their parents, or I did something wrong, right? Um, the letter might come with some, um, with some condemnation or some conviction. This letter came with the greeting, grace and peace to you. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an encouraging letter. This is a letter of encouragement from Paul. They were, the Ephesians were struggling. They were having a hard time. They were struggling with uh, the world and with uh, secular idol worship and all the rest, and they needed to know of God's grace and peace. And that's really a central focus of this letter. And that's why Paul opened up this letter in the greeting with grace and peace. Um, a bit of a sidebar, but to drive home more of this, this same point about um, God calling things as they are, this letter betrays Paul's uh, worldview, as some of us would call it. It also betrays uh, Paul's uh, Christian worldview, or basically a gospel worldview, a view of the world as it is. Um, we all have a worldview, right? We all, things, things happen around us, and as we get older, we develop these filters, and we try to like um, fine-tune our filters to understand what's going on around us. We try to ascribe meaning and purpose, and and, um, and warnings to different things that happen around us. And that, that, that lens is our, is our worldview. And it's a lens through which we unconsciously or consciously uh, view or interpret or understand all things in the world around us. Um, Apostle Paul had a worldview too. And, and the Apostle Paul, like us, viewed things at the physical level. But he also viewed things through the filter of God's word. And um, Paul saw life as God saw it. And so when Paul saw the saints in Ephesus struggling in sin and, and trying to, to live a, a faithful life, um, Paul, uh, Paul knew that he knew that they needed help, basically. And rather than calling them sinners, which they were, right? The Bible says we're all sinners. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul also knew that they were saints because of what God had done, because of what Jesus had done. And so Paul called them saints, um, calling them out as actually the Bible saw them. And that put them in a much more significant place. And that was really, again, the key point he was trying to drive home here is that, you guys, it's okay. God is in control. God is running things. So in some of this introduction, uh, Paul sees this letter um, as a heavenly message delivered by an authorized messenger of Christ 
communicating some very important, significant, transformational news about God's grace and peace to a body of faithful saints. You might, can you see how that would apply or that would encourage the poor believers in Ephesus, the believers struggling? Can you see how that might also minister to our hearts in our day and age here and now? Let's look next at the blessings. Um, as in the outline I mentioned, there's a, well, blessing overview. This is the blessing overview. We're looking at a number of blessings this morning in this uh, first 14 verses, in this first sentence. Um, but these, these blessings, these uh, blessings all have a point that I want us not to forget. This, this is a key thing to, to uh, remember here. Let's look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Hmm. Is this letter a pep talk? Or is there something else going on here? Um, What's the purpose Paul wrote this letter? To communicate blessings to the Ephesians? Or did he have something else that supersedes that? Something at a higher level? Was there something else going on? Um, Paul's starting off this letter emphasizing, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul is praising God here in this introduction. Paul is blessing God. This is basically an overflow of praise from Paul's heart to God. And while we focus on the blessings that he's given his church and believers in just a moment, we need to not forget that our central focus here should be not on, oh, look what God has done for me, right? That's not our focus at all. No, our focus should be on that these are blessings that God has given to us, and it's all about God. We need to not take our eyes off the blessing giver when we look at the blessings themselves. As well, let's also look at how these blessings are received. They received in Christ, right? They received through Christ. Um, it's almost like Christ is a black box, and, um, and we're inside it. And all of us are inside of it. All, we're all inside of Christ, basically. It's a black box. And, and that black block, that, maybe it's not a black box, it's Christ. Maybe it's a white box. It's a white box, right? <laughs> and, and that white box is, is when God looks at us, he sees Christ. We're within, we're inside of Christ. All that Christ did protects us and holds us and keeps us there. And, and we're receiving all these blessings through Christ. Finally, what kind of blessings were they? Is it a new car, a new house, Right? Swimming pool, Ferrari, uh, shotgun. I don't know what you guys, you know, bicycle. I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure what your I'm not sure what your what your favorite favorite idols are. But no, these are spiritual blessings. These are spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms, and these are things that are not subject to moth and rust and, dis- and decay. And these are blessings we've been given to enjoy now as believers, and they're blessings that will be more fully ours when we're actually with Christ um, and we see Him face to face. So again, as we wrap up verse 3, we want to not forget that Paul's reason for sharing these blessings is what? The blessings? No, it's God. We want to make sure we don't forget about God as we focus on what God has done for us. Let's look at our first blessing. Again, there's... Um, I want to make sure I don't lose track of our blessings. I'm going to put that there. I'll lose my pages. Um, we're going to be looking at election, 
redemption, and inheritance. So we're starting off with election, and um, which is a, a big red button pusher, and, it, and, it's, and it's a very significant uh, doctrine. Um, verses 3 to 6 read as follows. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let's start by looking at election. Um, What is the source of all of these blessings, right? Do you see the the what's going on here? Do you see what's going on? Let's see. Even as he chose us in him. Who chose us? He did. And he chose us in him, which I would I believe that would probably be referring to Christ. And when did this choosing happen? Before the foundation of the world. Now choosing we could go off into a, it'd be great to go off into a study of election. Um, and, and that'd be a good topic for another time. But what I do want to say is that election's in here. It's right here. And the choosing refers to basically God choosing us, God choosing you, God choosing me. If you're a Christian, if God has called you to him, if he's opened your eyes to your sin and your need for him, you've been chosen by God. And look when he chose you, though. Did he choose you when you actually accepted him? When you, when you saw who he was? No, he chose you before the foundation of the world a long, 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 long time ago. Before you were anything or I was anything, before the world was anything either, God chose you. Um, Let's look at this. Look as well that predestination for adoption. Adoption is the same way, but it drives home again this idea of God's sovereignty and God's work. We were predestined for adoption according to the purpose of, of his will. Again, are we doing the work? Who's in charge here? His will. So the point I want to drive home here basically is that while we are Christians, we need to, and while we rejoice in what salvation has done for us and the blessings that we have, we need to not forget that our position, our salvation, was based upon God's choice before the foundation of the world. And it had nothing to do with anything that we did, but that it was solely God. So why did God do that? Why would God want to do that? Well, let's go back again to that previous point Paul was talking about. He was sharing all of this for the praise of God's glory and grace, right? That was his purpose. If God chose us because we had some kind of warrant or some kind of achievement or some kind of worth or value, some kind of holiness of our own, would that be a good thing? Would that, would that give praise to God? What would give more praise to God? Him choosing us based on our works or choosing us based upon the fact that he just decided to do so because he felt like that was the right thing to do. It's that second answer. God gets glory because he saved sinners like you and I. The Apostle Paul was a murderer. Um, 
God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God, God spared Moses. God softened Moses' heart. God saved Moses. But you know what? Moses was a murderer as well. Moses was a murderer as well. So it's God that does the choosing and the, the election is for his glory. Finally, closing on election, I, I, don't, I can't leave this doctrine without um, highlighting a, a few good news points from this doctrine itself because it's, it's so cool, it's so significant, it's so important, and I hope I can communicate it clearly. Let, let's, say, let's say I was um, counseling um, one of you, the Sam's counseling Jeff, and, and um, to say Jeff was an unbeliever. This is before Jeff was a believer, okay? So it was, it was a while ago. And, um, and, and let's say Jeff came to me and said, you know what, God, I can't, I can't be saved. I can't come to God. You don't know what I've done. I've done A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. I can't come to God. Election disqualifies that. There's no way. There's nothing that you can do. It's not based on your works or your good deeds or your bad deeds. If God decides to call you into his kingdom, he's calling you into his kingdom for his glory, and you, you can't out-sin God. The doors are open to sinners and unsinners alike. If you're called, if God's calling you, if God's putting a burden on your heart to come to him, if God's revealed to you your sin, then you need to come to him because it's not your sin that keeps you from God because God has, that is not a disqualifying uh, character. You can't do that. That's very good news. That's good news for those of you that belabor under the fact that you're not righteous enough to be a Christian or to come in to Christianity. Um, What it also does is it disqualifies human boasting. So think of the Pharisees, right? They were always out there parading themselves before men and and they'd be out there, you know, straining at a gnat because they weren't supposed to eat meat. Is that what it was on a certain day? So they, they swallowed a gnat, so they were afraid, and they didn't want to swallow the gnat because it would cause them to have to go through purification rites again, and it was going to cause them not to be a, uh, a righteous person before God. Um, no, election disqualifies human boasting. There's nothing that we can do to either qualify us or disqualify us. And so the ground is level before the cross, and really, all we can really do is disqualify ourselves. We can't qualify ourselves at all. Unconditional election has another huge benefit. Um, it brings enduring peace to your um, salvation. Because you know what? Is it your salvation or God's salvation? It's God's salvation. It's God's work. He did the work. You can't undo it. It's based on Christ's work on the cross. We, we don't need to fear our salvation because it's God's work, and as we will see it later on, it's been sealed by the Holy Spirit. God has imprinted upon a, our hearts um, with his Holy Spirit. There's, there's an impression on our hearts. We hold the mark of the Spirit, and that's the down payment until we're with him face to face. And finally, again, this work, unconditional election, brings praise to God because our salvation is God's work. So, Paul was again encouraging these Ephesians, these struggling believers. God had done the work. They needed to just realize that, to open up their ears, to hear what God had done, and rest in the peace that God had given them. So that was it. That was election. Let's look next at the second blessing, that of redemption before Christ. Again, we're looking at election first, redemption second. 
inheritance third. The verses of redemption read as follows, verses 7 to 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things on heaven and things in earth. There's really two chunks here. We're going to look at the first half of this, focusing on the redemption. Then we're going to look at this mystery of his will as a bit of a sidebar, but that'll lead us into our next study of the next blessing, um, which is our inheritance. And we can see a neat thing that God is doing. We can see what this mystery of his will is, right? Spooky use. So, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. God has redeemed his people. He purchased us out of slavery to sin. The price was paid by the death of Christ on the cross. This was not an accidental thing. Jesus wasn't God's plan B, as they say. No. From the very beginning, before the foundations of the earth, God knew that Adam and Eve were going to blow it for all of mankind and that his plan from the beginning was to glorify himself through saving us through his work and his work alone. Like the other blessings in Ephesians, God's careful plan was to pay such a high price to forgive the sins of his people. And that reveals God's character. As we see here, he lavished upon us. He's not merely a gracious God, but he's overwhelmingly gracious and he's worthy of our praise. Okay, mystery of his will. What the heck is this? Um, A mystery in the Bible is a thing not that's totally mysterious, but it's a thing that was relatively hidden, previously hidden in the Old Testament that is now made known. Um, Many things were hidden, quote-unquote, and then revealed when Christ Christ arrived. Um, Some things actually were hidden in open sight, like uh, there's a number of prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about the suffering servant, right? They talk about the suffering Messiah, and, and they were there, but the Jews and the Christians probably even dismissed those. And it wasn't until later when those events happened in time that all of a sudden those scriptures, those verses, those prophecies become true and obvious. Um, in the same way, what we're seeing here basically is the plan, and we're going to get into this in, in, the next, in the next blessing, but a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things in earth. And I think this, is, this has got a dual, a dual fulfillment. It's, it's looking at on the one hand, God bringing everything unto him at the consumption, at the end of time, at the very end. But it also had a fulfillment back in Jesus' day and in Paul's day. Um, it was talking about how both the Jews and the Gentiles, the Gentiles as well, were going to come into the kingdom of God. I think this is pretty well explained in Ephesians, um, later on in Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. This, this, this explains a bit of this mystery a bit further. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on the behalf of the Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of this stewardship of God's grace that was given for you, show the mystery that was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into a mystery of Christ, 
which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it is now been revealed to his holy apostles by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is a big change. This is a significant change back in that time. Before this time, it was Jews only, and they were the keepers of the promise. And God's promises were made to Abraham, and the Jews said, it's Abraham and Israel the promises were made. Gentiles, you're out. But this is the beginning of something new, and this is a central part of, of, of Paul's, uh, Paul's doctrine. Let's move on next to inheritance, the, the fourth and final blessing. And this again drives home a bit more this idea of this mystery, this mystery of the Gentiles being considered worthy to be also considered in the kingdom of God. Um, verses 11 to 14 read as follows. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. What's going on here? That's a lot of, that's a lot of words, Paul. Um, I think the key point I want to drive home here is notice the pronouns. Hopefully I got that right. In him we, so that we, in him you also, who is our inheritance. In him we is talking about the saved Jews who obtained an inheritance. Paul is talking to his people, the Jews, so that we who were first, the Jews were first, right? To hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, but also in him you also, you Gentiles, you saved Gentiles, those of you that have put faith in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, the guarantee of both the inheritance of the Jews and the Gentiles, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of its glory. Again, God chose to redeem, to save the Gentiles as well as the Jews, to expand the scope of his salvation, of his kingdom, from the Jews only to broader than the Jews, to all of mankind, to open up the doors and the entry to all of mankind, um, was a significant change. And Paul is driving home that point here to the church at Ephesus, the believers in Ephesus, because you had both Jews and Gentiles. And the goal, again, was that both groups, Jew and Gentile, might actually praise him. So what? What do these first 14 verses have to do with um, our lives today in 21st century Roseville? Um, trying to figure out what Ephesians is like is kind of like hearing one side of a phone conversation. So maybe your spouse is on the phone, maybe the speakerphone, no, not speakerphone, not speakerphone, walking around, right? Going like this. You're only hearing what they're saying. And then in your mind, you're like, going, oh, no, what's going on, right? You can hear one side of the conversation. And um, so in your mind, you're, you're making something up. Um, and so we've only got one side of the conversation when we actually see 
what Paul was writing to the Ephesians. But we do know what he wrote. We do know one side of the conversation. We can also uh, know that based on the, uh, the temple, the, the riot in the temple when Paul was preaching, um, combined with these blessings that Paul took such pains to highlight, um, that, that we can begin to ascertain what was going on. I think what probably drives home the key central point to all these blessings to me is Paul's prayer that he shares just after this, a little bit after this, in, Eph- in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 19, Paul prayed that Christ might dwell in their hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge you may be fulfilled you may be filled with all the fullness of the glory of God much like you and I today I think the church in Ephesus intellectually understood the gospel and what it meant but much like you and I today they were living in the midst of a mind-numbing secular culture and um, perhaps were experiencing spiritual amnesia um, Christian, are you experiencing those same things? Are you struggling today with these same truths? If so, I would pray along with Paul that you would be able to see the length and the breadth and the depth of what God has done to us and that that might reinvigorate you, that that might give you hope um, for, for daily living, for tomorrow morning when you go into work at that hard job or tomorrow morning when you're having to take care of that sick relative. Um, Non-Christians, um, I would just encourage you, if you're not a Christian, to, to come to Christ. Um, if you're not a Christian, I want to just read a brief verse as to what Ephesians chapter 2 says about your status. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Children of wrath, it's not a place you want to be. You want to be a children of promise. You want to be a child of God. You want to come into his kingdom. If that concerns you, I'll be up here after this service, and I'd love to talk to you. love to talk to you, and we'll talk about God's good news and what he's done and why you can trust your life to him and and the good news of the gospel. Christians, as Paul encouraged the Ephesians to focus on the blessings found in Christ, so too I encourage you to better understand, to seek to better understand the blessings that were accredited to your account when you came to faith in Christ. Once you were dead in your trespasses and sins, now we are alive in Christ. Meditate on God's blessing for those in Christ. And like the Ephesians, you'll find assurance, grace, and peace that you need to live in a way that gives glory to God in this troubling day and age. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for this, for your word. I thank you for your revelation beyond nature that your word provides. Words that cause us to praise you, God, for what you have done Thank you as well, God, as well for your blessings, for choosing to save us for no other reason than for your glory. 
Thank you also, Father, for redeeming us, for paying the debt required to set us free from the bondage of sin, a debt we could not pay. And finally, God, thank you for reassuring us for your peace by imprinting our hearts with the seal of your Holy Spirit, guaranteeing a safe arrival of believers in heaven, not because of works that we have done or not done, but because of your sovereign will for your glory and grace and also for our eternal good. And we praise you with, these, with this prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.